Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Well, we're so excited to have Ron Brownstein here after we were on a bunch of great panels with you yeah. uh, at both the uh, Democratic and Republican conventions. He is uh, an editor at The Atlantic and senior political analyst for CNN. So thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Great to be with you. So, um, So we think of you as one of the early pioneers in coverage of polling before there were thousands of folks, before there was a polling podcast, <laughs> even <laughs> hard to believe those ta- those early days. But um, but since uh, certainly since I've been in Washington, um, so that means since Kristen's been in Washington. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your background covering polling and why uh, covering polls is so important. Well, you know, I, I started covering politics uh, in the 1984 campaign, if you can believe it. This is my ninth presidential campaign. I was working at National Journal Magazine, actually, which, where I you know, kind of came back to many years later, uh, in the early 1980s and was drafted to help cover the final stages of the Democratic primary uh, between Walter Mondale and Gary Hart and then covered the general election with Ronald Reagan. And I've been covering and I've covered every campaign since. Um, and in the early 1990s, uh, you know, right after, uh, right around the time of the 92 campaign, when I went over to the LA Times uh, and joined the LA Times as their chief political reporter for many years, uh, I became the, 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 the principal writer of, of the LA Times poll. And I think it may have been my experience at that point of living in California that made me very attuned. This is circa 1989, 1990, 1991, uh, that made me very attuned to the importance of changing demography on really wrenching, going through a wrenching change, not totally dissimilar to what we are facing now nationally, where you had a, in essence, a center-right white majority that ran the state that was giving way to a more diverse uh, demography that was also tilting the balance of power somewhat to the left. So I was here uh, you know, for the first Pete Wilson victory. I had just gone to Washington for the LA Times uh, for the second Pete Wilson victory as governor, which included Prop 187, uh, the ballot initiative to ban public you know, services for uh, undocumented immigrants, which was, I think, if you now look up in the Sapphire Political Dictionary under Pyrrhic victory, you find a picture of Prop 187. <laughs> um, uh, and I think it was really that experience that made me so focused on kind of uh, not only polling in general, 
but really understanding, looking below the top line, you know, um, and kind of understanding how the different groups in society were rearranging. Because, you know, in many ways, what happened in California in the 90s was the prototype of what happened uh, in the, um, you know, in, in the entire country uh, since 92, which is these two big forces, the class inversion, what I call the class inversion, which is the shift in which Democrats went from being the party of blue collar white America to being stronger in white collar white America and blue collar whites realigned toward the GOP combined with growing diversity. Those two things together tilted California from a, a light red state to a solidly blue state. Uh, and we have watched the same kind of dynamic play out nationally. So I think, as I said, I think it was being part of that experience that made me very much attuned to the role of both class changes and ethnic and racial changes in reshaping our politics. Well, we're seeing in this election now a lot of these fault lines. I mean, it just feels like everything has been exacerbated, right? I mean, Ron, I, I mentioned this on our, our the main podcast this past week, but, you know, how in 2012 there was this idea that maybe Republicans could run up the numbers with white yeah. voters. But understanding even if we lose, um, you know, Latino voters, African-American voters, well, you know, maybe this can work this time, but it'll be the last time anybody tries this. Well, it actually wasn't the last time anybody's yes. trying this because Donald Trump is now sort of doubled down on it. Um, but, I mean, what's your take on this election and the way that these fault lines have just been inflamed. And do you think how much damage do you think this is doing to the GOP long term? Let's 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 hold that second one for a moment. <laughs> I'm, 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 because I think it's a very important question when you look at Donald Trump's ratings with millennials that are somewhat uh, uh, hidden by the fact that Hillary Clinton herself has such weak ratings yeah. with millennials. But Donald Trump is defining the Republican Party in a way that could not be more objectionable uh, to younger, younger Americans. Well, look, I mean, I think I think what Donald Trump does is he has taken the trends that have been reshaping American politics since 1992. And he pushes them further at both ends, as Paul Begala, I think, said to me very uh, concisely for, for, in a story a few weeks ago. You know, you know, essentially, as I said, I mean, one of the long-term trends, this, this goes back to the 1960s, one of the most powerful trends in our politics is what I like to call the class inversion, which is that every Democratic nominee from Adlai Stevenson through Jimmy Carter ran better among blue-collar whites, whites without a college education, than among white-collar whites. Democrats were the party of people who work with their hands. Republicans were the party of people who wore a suit and tie to work, professionals. Um, that you know, began to break down in the 70s and 80s. A lot of reasons why, why re Republicans gained ground in blue-collar America, Democrats gained ground in, in white-collar America. And so you get to this decade, and every Democratic nominee since 2000 has run better among whites with a college education than whites without a college education, which is an alignment that was unprecedented uh, before then. With Donald Trump, though, you are seeing that shift you know, move into overdrive. Uh, you know, right. the biggest the biggest gap has been Obama in 2008 ran seven points better among college than non-college whites. Hillary Clinton is now consistently running 12, 14, 15 points better among college than non-college whites. You know, in uh, uh, the Maris polls that came out this week, she was 21 points better among college than non-college whites in Ohio, 19 points better in Pennsylvania, 14 points better in Ohio. So he takes this kind of re, you know, this kind of shift. Uh, um, and he pushes it even further. And then, of course, the other thing that he does is compound the Republican problems among the diverse next America, as I like to call it. 
you know, the, the high point for any Democratic nominee and the two-party vote among minorities since 1984 has been 82%. It is entirely possible that Hillary Clinton will push out even past that, right? I mean, there have been polls where, as you know, national polls where he is polling one or two percent nationally among African Americans. The Marist polls this week had him at one percent among African Americans in both Ohio and Pennsylvania. And you know, at the same time, the big large sample polls show him under twenty percent among Hispanics. So, you know, the, uh, the, the basically what Trump does, I think, and, and yet, and despite all that, all that bad news. You know, very quickly in the post-convention polling, he's reestablished a big lead among blue-collar whites. I mean, he's back to 60 percent in most of these polls, despite everything that's happening to him. So, you know, it is possible that, you know, under Donald Trump, Republicans will do even better than they have done in recent elections in working class white America, but will face the biggest deficit ever among non-white America. And he is in real risk of becoming the first Republican nominee ever in the history of polling to lose college educated whites. Right. And, you know, as you guys know, I mean, we have different data sources on what the electorate looks at, like the census and, and the exit polls are different, but either way, minorities and college educated whites between them are gonna be somewhere between 59 and 65% of the electorate, somewhere between three fifths and two thirds. And if you are running that poorly among those two groups, even a very strong showing among the remaining one third to two fifths that are blue collar whites are not gonna be enough to save you. Right. Well, it seems that Donald Trump, you know, has he figured out where his sweet spot was in the Republican primary. He found this group that was not being well served by any of the other 16 candidates. He had unique advantages. He used them to his his favor. He won the nomination. And now that he has the nomination, he continues to really only talk to that same yeah. group that he already won. You know, it's striking to me. I agree. And, and I am struck. I mean, Donald Trump is not could not have made all this money by being a dumb guy or by being totally a uh, slave to his impulses. So many times when he's had the opportunity to speak to a broader audience, he has chosen to double down on either conspiracy theories like the election is rigged uh, or, you know, totally over the top rhetoric. Um, that basically suggests he really believes that if he keeps talking to this culturally conservative, right of center, blue collar, non-urban coalition, which was the core of what got him to this point, that there is this massive hidden vote that's going to come out, I, you know, and, and elect him. I, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, there have been so many months of doing this that it is simply that the guy just can't control what he says when he gets up on the stage. I mean, he must genuinely believe you know, kind of the Sean Trendy argument from, you know, 2013, that there are millions of culturally conservative whites who don't vote. But even Sean Trendy has basically said, you know, that, well, Trump isn't really exercising, you know, you know, isn't what I envisioned. I think it is a really important question for Republicans. Is it possible to get the kind of response that Trump has gotten from non-urban, culturally conservative, blue collar, white America without adding the racial antagonism that is driving away, importantly, not only non-white America, but also so much of white-collar white America. Is, is it a contradiction? Is, is the missing white voter theory a contradiction in terms? Can you get the turnout? Can you activate so many millions of non-traditional, culturally conservative blue-collar voters without an agenda that everybody else finds really scary? 
Right. I mean, it, there are a couple things, right, to think about. Well, first of all, I haven't heard many people argue that this is his actual strategy, that he's being very calculating in what he says as opposed to simply impulsive and nuts, which is now seemed to be the pr- conventional wisdom. So that's good to have a pause to think, well, maybe this is actually well, he did his say, electoral I think strategy. last night he was giving an interview where he said – yeah, I, I I love the polls. I'm I'm basically my own pollster. And then, but then he added this new. So he said that before we talk. We Trump, love when he says Trump that. on polls is like our favorite you segment know, of the show. But he you, he added a, a a clause to this where he said there's a big there's a big group of people out there that you don't even know about yet. Yeah. Like there's some secret like millions of Americans living yeah. in a cave somewhere <laughs> that are all going to come out and vote for Trump and us as pollsters were just missing. I mean, I, and I actually think he believes that's true. Yeah, I mean, but the last Washington Post ABC poll, Ron, had white non-college educated men, a group where Trump yeah. does great, but it's 18% of their yes, poll. Right, so right, he would have right. to get literally all of them if he, given where he is with everybody else in order to be competitive. Um, so that's, you know, the first thing. And then the other thing is, and you, you raise this a, a bit in your an- last answer, uh, does the message that appeals to one group then uh, make suppresses you further with the other group? Can right. you speak to all these groups simultaneously when it seems like a lot of what we're talking about is about race and gender and, the, you know, our questions about diversity? Right. I, look, I, I think the biggest question Republicans will face after this election will be, is it possible to speak more powerfully to these blue-collar white voters who are obviously both culturally and economically uh, feeling disenfranchised and uh, marginalized without uh, an agenda that scares and drives away everybody else? Um, I mean, I think the great counterfactual people always ask about this campaign is, could Trump have won the nomination without the racially barbed nativism uh, and, and xenophobia? Could he have won it simply on tough on trade and an outsider business guy coming to break up the club in Washington that hasn't been meeting your needs? Because certainly, if that was the way he was running right now, he would be in a much stronger position to compete for white-collar white America, which is the biggest single obstacle between him and the White House, and which, we should point out, doesn't really love Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, in that ABC Washington Post poll, a majority of college whites say they have an unfavorable view of her. 56% say the thought of a Hillary Clinton presidency makes them anxious, but... 60% of them, you know, basically say Donald Trump is not qualified to be president. 60% of them say that they view him as racially biased. Um, And seven, you know, over 70% say the thought of him as president makes them anxious. So, you know, Trump emerged in this primary, I think, because of this sharp, I think the racial edge of his message is what allowed him to stand out in that multi-candidate field, allowed him to win almost half cumulatively of non-college Republicans. In the 17-person field, if you look at the cumulative exit poll, he only won 35% of college-educated Republicans. So this problem, the problem that this message drove away traditionally Republican-leaning suburban white-collar voters has been evident from the beginning. Look at the results from Northern Virginia in the Virginia primary, and you pretty much know, you have everything you need to know about why he is looking uphill at this moment in the general election. I've I have continued to think a lot about this question of what will the right do after this election? And is it possible for us to walk and chew gum at the same time? Can we win this, if not outright, but at least do better with this next America group while not sacrificing the people that we have in our coalition now? The thing that I think is really fascinating about Trump's rise is the way that he blew up the assumption that the way to win a Republican primary is to be 
very conservative because I think right. Donald Trump by by many measures is not particularly conservative. And even though I mean you mentioned these these uh you know blue collar whites who are culturally conservative it doesn't seem to me that right. the Trump voters let, that like abortion and gay marriage are their no, top no, issues. Right. And so, you know, in a way, it's been fascinating to me to watch right. it's a him different blow heat. that uh, it, up. It, it, yeah, it is, right. Because he basically cut the Republican Party along a new axis. Right. I mean, he, he didn't follow the traditional liberal, moderate, conservative, evangelical, not. Those have been the two big divides in Republican primaries. Uh, in, you know, you had a candidate who was the candidate of the evangelicals and the most conservative elements, Huckabee, Santorum. You had a candidate who was a more secular, center-right, suburban, middle-manager, white-collar candidate, McCain, Romney. Trump basically, you know, replaced that. Uh, you know, ideology and religious affiliation did not matter that much in terms of driving the vote. What mattered was education. That was the clear fault line between the non-college Republicans who rallied around him in remarkable numbers uh, and the, and the white-collar Republicans who were always much cooler toward him with gender kind of overlaid and reinforcing that. And and really, it was these issues of race. It was essentially, you know, a, a, um, a referendum on the changing America. You know, the, that question, was life in America better or worse 50 years ago for people like you, you know, turns out to be a very important uh, measure. Uh, if, you, if you look at the exit polls, as I think you know, there were very few states, only Mississippi and Alabama, I believe, were the only states with an exit poll where a majority of Republican primary voters supported Donald Trump's idea of mass deportation of all undocumented immigrants. But so many of the people who did support that idea voted for him in such overwhelming numbers that they provided a majority of his votes in virtually every state. So, uh, you know, in essence, he cut the party a more along a kind of blood and soil or race and nationalism line with trade. Um, uh, and uh, demographic change being kind of, I think, the key variables. Um, but also, uh, you know, we should point out opposition to entitlement cuts, right? I mean, which which kind of uh, point toward a long-term challenge where the GOP may want to go after this election. And this is the conundrum really facing Republicans, which is that he has shown there is a big audience, a big portion of the Republican Party who is deeply unnerved by the cultural and demographic change we're living through. What the general election is showing is that that audience is not a majority. So you have this, what I've called a coalition of restoration in the GOP, which may be half of the party or more facing what I've called a coalition of transformation in the Democratic Party, which is essentially diverse America and the portions of white America that are comfortable with diverse America. That is bigger in a general election context but how do you get past the portion of the GOP that simply does not want to accommodate the changing America in the way, say, a Paul Ryan would, but wants a candidate who kind of rails against it? That is going to be a big challenge if Trump does not improve on the trajectory that he's on right now. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, regardless of what happens to Trump, even if he gets trounced, you know, win or lose, it doesn't matter. This is going to be a major question. So, you know, what's your take? What do Republicans need to do, especially given the battleground states, the Senate in play, more House races in play? Uh, what's their ability to distance themselves from Trump? Is there a cost attached to Senate candidates, Senate Republicans who try to disavow Trump, do they then lose with other Republicans who are in their base? I mean, what kind of challenges are facing Republicans down ballot? Well, this is going to be a great political science experiment with real world consequences, because we know that party line voting has been increasing and split ticket voting has been declining steadily since the 70s. I mean, this is not a short term trend. You know, if you go back to the high point in 1972, 
uh, with Nixon and McGovern and obviously Democrats getting reelected in large numbers. Since then, we have seen a steady decline in both split ticket districts. Uh, 2012 was the smallest number of districts that voted one way for president and the other way for the House in uh, 90 years, but also uh, people splitting their ticket at the Senate level. I remember I was on uh, ABC on election night. Uh, in 2012, and I still have my little sheet, uh, legal sheet, where I had written down, if you looked in the exit polls, routinely we were seeing above 85% of Obama voters vote Democratic in Senate races in the same state, and above 85% of Romney voters vote Republican. And if that, anything like that continues, obviously Republicans cannot survive a significant Trump loss. Now, there's reason for Republicans to hope that you might see more split ticket voting than has been common lately in the sense that Trump seems so different from a normal politician. It is harder to wrap other Republicans uh, around him. And, and if, you know, in, in all, in all uh, candor, Democrats have made this easier by the choice at the convention, President Obama's choice and Hillary Clinton's choice to run a top of the ticket strategy and say to Republicans, Donald Trump is not a typical I was, Republican. I was so thrilled. I was like fist pumping yes. when Obama was giving that part of his speech. I was I like, mean, well, thank you. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think Harry Reid thought about that part of the speech? Uh, because obviously like they <laughs> Now, having said that, if Donald Trump loses by five or six points, Republicans will lose the Senate. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable to me they won't. I mean, yeah. you look at the poll in places like New Hampshire and um, Pennsylvania and Illinois and Wisconsin, just for starters, where, you know, four states where Trump is at the moment heading for a double digit defeat. That is a lot. That is a bit, you know, Jim Hunt in the greatest Senate race in modern times in 1984 ran a million votes ahead of Walter Mondale against Jesse Helms and he lost. There's a limit. You know, I, I think it's going to be hard to run a million votes ahead of um, Donald Trump if you're Pat Toomey. So, and especially uh, since, you know, I mean, here's the other challenge. I mean, while Democrats maybe say, look, he's, you know, he's not one of yours because we're trying to get Republican voters to, to move over. There are not a lot of Republicans who are very clear about how they feel about Trump. Mm-hmm. So that's the challenge, right? If you if you were saying. I don't endorse him, but I'm voting for him, and I disagree with everything he says. But I still think he's better than Hillary Clinton. And don't ask me this question anymore. What kind of you know? That's yeah. a very mixed signal at best. Well, I, I've heard that the the strategy that some folks and look, some Republicans tried this whole check and balance strategy back in 2010. I wasn't as crazy about it then, but I can see a lot of these folks saying, "Look." If you're voting for Hillary Clinton, you should also vote for me because I know that a lot of you out there voting for Hillary Clinton don't actually like her and don't actually want her to have this strong mandate to run amok. And so pick her, but then send me Rob Portman or me, Pat Toomey or me, Ron Johnson, back to the Senate and I'll keep my eye on her and make sure that, you know, this things don't get too far off the rails. I don't know how effective that is. It's pretty processy, though. Yeah, I I don't know how effective that is. That seems pretty plausible to me, actually. I mean, I, I remember in the 96 campaign, of course, at the end, Republicans made a similar argument, essentially saying Dole's going to lose. You don't want to give Bill Clinton a, a free hand. Um, and in this case, I, given the high negatives for Hillary Clinton, especially among these college whites who are providing kind of the margin of victory. I mean, I look at, you know, unless there is this hidden army of reserve army of, you know, culturally conservative blue collar voters out there who are ready to storm the polls, uh, you know, the voters who are keeping Donald Trump between the, the voters in between Don, where, where Donald Trump is and where he needs to be are largely white collar white suburbanites. And Many of them don't like Hillary Clinton. So I could see that argument having effect to a point. But, you know, it's not a 10 point argument. Right. So if if you if you if you take just those four states that I mentioned, uh, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, um, uh, Illinois and um, Wisconsin and Trump remains as weak as he is in those four. 
uh, I think it's really hard to hold them. Uh, you know, whether whether it goes beyond that, you know, Florida is an interesting one. Ohio could be the reverse. I mean, Ohio could be a place where Trump is completely competitive because he's back to 60, close to 60 percent uh, among non-college whites in the polling there already. So um, Ohio may be a little bit of an exception here. But but in general, I think it is possible we'll see more split ticket balloting, but it's not infinite. You yeah. know, it, it doesn't get you anywhere. The, if so it's 10 points. I want to go back to this question then of, of Trump's, you know, secret army of voters that he's going to turn yeah. out. Because, you know, in 2008, Barack Obama did turn out a whole bunch yeah. of voters that had never participated before. But the way he did it was with insanely good organization, yeah. yes. lots of field program, lots of knocking on doors. And crazy tweets. What? No. no. <laughs> crazy <laughs> tweets were not a part of the strategy. Um, you know, and Donald Trump, not only does he not really have that. I mean, it, right. the RNC would be the only entity that he could rely on to right. parachute in with that. And they're even like maybe playing triage and just saying like, forget this. When we send our people out to knock on doors, they're going to be knocking doors about Rob Portman. Not, I mean, I don't know if it gets, goes that far, but, but on the other hand, Donald Trump without any real field operation managed to win in a Republican primary against folks like Ted Cruz that had, you know, dorms right. in States where right. they were full sure. of volunteers. So can Donald Trump, Understanding that we know he does not have a field program, it's and, and turning out new voters is an insanely hard and expensive things to do. And he's but, going up against the full weight of all but right. hands on deck. And, 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 and he take his way to this yeah. goal, like assuming these people right. exist, which they may not even exist, but assuming they well, did, can he get them without a, a, a robust field program? It's, it's a great, it's a great question. First of all, a lot of people don't vote, right? So there are millions of non-voters of every. Uh, denomination and stripe that are out there. And, and part of the big, big change in our politics uh, is, you know, starting with the Bush campaign in 2004, that really was a turning point in our politics where they switched, they became the first campaign ever to spend as much money on mobilization as persuasion on the theory that it was more cost effective to find someone who agrees with you and doesn't usually vote and turn them out than it was to convert the mythical swing voter living in Dayton, Ohio, through, you know, television ads and mail. And then, you know, David Plouffe basically accepted that theory. I, I've often said Plouffe is a Rovian in that sense. And that Obama <laughs> also focused, you know, Obama lost independent voters in 2012 by more than any Democrat who had ever won the White House. Uh, and, uh, you know, their focus clearly was on expanding the electorate. But there's two big differences between them and Donald Trump. The first one is the one you mentioned. They actually had a program to do this with, you know, all of these data heads, you know, sitting there in rooms, you know, I, I had a conversation with uh, Jeremy Byrd and David Axelrod after the 2012 campaign. And I asked them in a battleground state, what percentage of the people who voted for you do you think you knew by name, by name? And they both said, if you're relying on our modeling, 95%, right? So like they were dealing not with the beach, they were dealing with grains of sand. Um, and obviously Trump, it's going to be nothing like, that's an incredible number, right? I mean, you know, uh, they believe their modeling was sufficient that they knew by name upwards of 90% of the people who voted for them in, in a, in a targeted swing state. But so that's the first thing. They obviously have a much more robust organization. But the second thing is, I think even more important, which is that Obama in trying to turn out what I've called the coalition of the ascendant was swimming with the demographic current. All of the groups he was targeting 
were rising, were growing as a share of eligible voters, right? So the, the share of eligible voters represented by millennials, Hispanics, African-Americans, and college-educated white women is growing. So he was swimming with the current in trying to turn out more of them. In 2016, whites without a college education, I can guarantee you this, will be a smaller share of the eligible voting population than they were in 2012. So Donald Trump, in having to make them a larger share of the actual electorate, is kind of swimming against the current. Plus, he hasn't really bought a paddle yet. So, you know, um, it's... What are you talking about? He's got the hugest <laughs> paddle. It's It's... He's going to win them bigly. <laughs> well, and, he, and he will. I mean, look, it says no, Trump in big letters on it. <laughs> but let's, 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 let's pause for a minute there to think about what it says for the Democratic Party in that this modern Democratic coalition, you know, what I call either the coalition of the ascendant or the coalition of transformation, which is essentially three big groups, right? It's, it's millennials, non-white, and college-educated and secular whites, especially women within that category. That is... Five out of six, it's won the popular vote of the presidency. It certainly looks like it's on track to do so again. But it is not well suited to control the Congress because it is overly concentrated in urban America. It is not very competitive outside of metropolitan areas. It's not very competitive in kind of the heartland states. So if you have a, if, if you have a candidate like Trump who ends up winning over 60% of non-college whites with all of his manifest you know, uh, challenges that he creates for voters, it really kind of speaks to how alienated that big chunk of kind of, you know, America is from what the Democratic Party is offering now. And it may be that there is no answer, that if you're going to be a consistently culturally liberal party that speaks to the values and priorities of this new coalition, which is in normal times a majority coalition at the presidential level, maybe there's no way you can hold Southeast Ohio or compete there. But I think Democrats are going to have to grapple with this challenge of a coalition that is very well configured to win the presidency, very well configured to control the mayoral offices in, in you know virtually every big city, but not so great at all the elections in between. So uh, this is something that there's been an increasing amount of research on, which you touch on, and we heard it in our Walmart Moms group, and Pew's done a lot of work on this, the sense that people are not mixing anymore with each other, right? Yeah. Republicans aren't hanging out with Democrats. People, you know, Trump voters don't know any Clinton voters. People are unfriending their family on Facebook. Everyone thinks everyone in the other party is horrible. Like, this is clearly getting worse. It's gotten, this is yeah. not just, you know, politics as usual, it's getting much worse. I mean, is this a trend that, it, 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 I mean, I'm assuming your perspective is similar. What do you think, how do we even turn this around or is it impossible to turn that around? Well, you know, as politics has become more culturally based, it's definitely, this is definitely the trend, right? I mean, essentially, there are a lot of ways to think about the divide in our politics, but, you know, uh, it, it would be, I think, I think a good way of thinking about it is you now have a younger, more diverse, more secular, more white collar, and importantly, more urbanized democratic coalition that kind of faces off against an older, predominantly white, more blue collar, more religious, and heavily non-urban Republican coalition, just a couple numbers. Mitt Romney won over three quarters of the counties in America, but President Obama won 86, 86 of the 100 largest counties in the country by a combined 12 million votes, right? So Romney won everything else by 7 million votes, but it wasn't enough to overcome the Democratic dominance in big city America. When you turn to the House, that advantage is less valuable because, you know, as you move in kind of concentric circles away from the biggest population concentrations, Democrats just fall off the map. And, you know, as Pew has shown in our own polling uh, at, in our Heartland Monitor, 
Um, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, or, or left of center and right of center voters, have different priorities in the places they live. Right of center voters put more um, uh, emphasis on cultural and even uh, racial homogeneity, you know, and, and, and you have kind of a, as I said, a, a democratic coalition that is diverse America and the portions of white America that are most comfortable with diverse America. And you have a Republican coalition that kind of uh, are, are, is centered outside of that. So I think that is a basic trend. I mean, it is a, it is a challenge for the country uh, because none of us are going away, even though we're not really living with each other. Uh, you know, Berkeley and Brooklyn are not going away and Birmingham isn't going away. So ultimately, we have to find a better way to accommodate our differences, acknowledging that our differences are being sorted in a way that makes them more apparent and more pointed probably than ever before. So uh, I, my last question for you, Ron, then, is I this morning put together an electoral college map where I mm. gave Hillary Clinton every state where the polls suggest she currently has a double digit lead or more. Like I only gave mm. her okay. two states that the polling right now really suggests these are not swing states. And then anything else like a North Carolina, um, you know, Ohio, I left blank. And then I gave Trump everything that, you know, seems okay. like a reasonable Trump state. And I, she's at 273, giving, yeah. leaving Ohio off the table, leaving North right. Carolina off the table, leaving Florida, Florida. off right. the table, leaving Arizona and Nevada off the table. Is there right. any way Trump actually – like I'm still of the mind that there is no way he becomes president because the Electoral College is just so insane. I mean, I look, I mean, you, you know, you never you, you would say on you know, the current disposition of the electorate, which is reflected in that Electoral College map, is pretty is getting pretty baked. I mean, we have enormous internal consistency in polls going back quite a ways that Donald Trump is going to run very well, maybe even better than Mitt Romney among blue collar whites, that he is going to face huge, maybe the biggest deficits ever among non-whites. And he has a real risk of becoming the first Republican in the history of polling to lose college educated whites. And of course, Hillary Clinton doesn't need to win college educated whites. If she runs even or even close to even among them, it's a landslide. So all of those numbers, and they're very consistent in both the national and state polling, they would suggest that Trump is facing some you know, insurmountable obstacles. You never say never for a couple of reasons. One, obviously world events could, could intervene. Two, if, if questions about Clinton keep rising, you could see more of the vote drift off to those third and fourth party choices. And I think that's the best chance for Trump to win, honestly, which is that the, the number you need to win comes way down because uh, I think there is a ceiling that he's facing in terms of as long as white collar white America is this hostile to him, he can't get much higher than where uh, he is. Uh, and then last, you know, uh, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe there is this hidden tide of voters that none of us are catching uh, uh, in our polling. But the the Electoral College, you know, in 2009, I coined a phrase that I, I now demand a nickel every time somebody uses it called the blue wall. Right. Which is oh, this idea are, that there are, you're the guy behind the blue wall. That's good. I think I, I owe you at least a buck because I think <laughs> right. I've used it. Like I, I think, I think there's a, there's we'll a, give you a percentage a of our monitor. podcast money, <laughs> which means you owe us. There's a little monitor on my desk that goes off every time somebody uses it. And my accountants immediately send them a bill, um, you know, but. The blue wall is the 18 states that have voted Democratic in every election since 1992, which is the most. They have 242 electoral college votes when you add in D.C. By the way, that is the most states Democrats have won that often in the history of the party. If they win all of them again, and right now, 
she is way ahead in all of them. The only three that are competitive historically have been Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and Trump is showing no life in, in, in the latter two. If they win all of them again, it'll be the most states any party has won in seven consecutive elections uh, in American history. But you know, as you know, as I'm sure you've looked at, uh, you know, if, you, if you take those 242, you add to it Nevada, I'm sorry, not Nevada, New Mexico, because Nevada is a little uh, off the reservation for Democrats this time. You add to it New Mexico, Colorado, and Virginia, and you are at 269 right there. And then, of course, she is now way ahead in New Hampshire, which I assume is how you get to 273. So if you can't break the blue wall, if you can't dislodge something from the blue wall, you essentially have to win. You know, it's very hard, especially because the states defined by diversity and growing education are so tough for him. The blue wall plus Colorado, Virginia, and New Mexico he has to he has to win every other state, and then it's only a tie. Uh, even then, so Pennsylvania, you can't overstate the importance of these four now, right? It's four consecutive polls with her up essentially double digits in Pennsylvania. And again, why is she up so much in Pennsylvania? Because she is way ahead of where Obama was with white collar whites. Obama, despite you know, in 2012. He won the Philadelphia suburbs by half as much as he did in 2008. He lost college whites by double digits in Pennsylvania. She's winning college whites by double digits in Pennsylvania. And, you know, that is blowout material. Bucks County. Keep an eye on it. That's right. Yeah, Montgomery, Montgomery County. Yep, uh, absolutely. She, he won them, by the way, he won the four suburban counties outside Philly by 200,000 votes in 2008. And it's not unreasonable to think she could match that or exceed that. Um, Tom Davis, who you, who you should have on your podcast if you haven't, you know, he said to me he thought Trump could lose Fairfax County by 170,000 votes. How many votes is he going to lose Mecklenburg County by? You're going to see the urban, non-urban divide, like the college, non-college, like the white, non-white. You're going to see all of those divides reach uh, earthquake kind of, you know, big one proportions uh, in, this, in this election. Because Trump, as, as Paul Begala said to me, he pushes on both ends of the balloon. He strengthens them where the, the, the electorate has been heading in their direction, but he represents an enormous, enormous challenge with the growing parts of the electorate where Republicans have struggled, which goes back to your question of before, how much of a long-term challenge for the GOP brand is this going to be? Donald Trump has explicitly defined himself as a candidate of restoration. The key word in the Trump lexicon I've written, and I believe, is again. It's again. Uh, and, you know, there are not a lot of professional women or African-Americans or Latinos, however happy they, unhappy they are about anything going on in America today, and not many of them say, well, you know, things are better for people like me 50 years ago, right? It just, the again, defines the Republican Party as a party hostile to what America is becoming, and I think that is going to be a big challenge after the election if Trump can't recover. Even if he can, it might be a bigger challenge if he wins. Well, welcome to my daily nightmare, Ron. <laughs> well, yeah. they, they I feel did, a lot better I, than I did yesterday. I am just feeling better. I'm like, oh, God. But you know what I am going to do? I'm going to make a set of flashcards with all of these numbers on it so that I can memorize them all and yes. sound maybe 10% as smart as I you. Know, Ron, this was incredible. If your other six jobs don't work out, you can always be a yeah. guest host on the Pulse. I'm not thinking about making these flashcards, though. I'm going to make them, and I'll put the PD. Well, we can tweet out the PDF, like a link oh, to yeah, the PDF, oh, yeah. so all of our listeners can you know, be as smart right, as, so what, as Ron. What, 
what did we say? I mean, what I wrote in 12 was the election could be reduced to two numbers, right? 80, 40. Donald, you know, if President Obama won 80 percent of minorities and 40 percent of whites, he won. He won, it ended up being 80, 39. This time, you know, uh, she probably can win with somewhere like 37 or 38 percent of whites. But the, the challenge for Trump is that that 80 number is going to go up even higher. That right. 80 number could be 82 or 83. And, you know, we, we can all sit here and, and have our estimates of the uh, composition of the electorate. But the, the number is probably something like 8236 or 8235. And that is just I mean, if you can win with 35 percent or 36 percent of whites, that is challenging, again, because the same agenda that, dri that drives up that non-white number drives down your college white number. So right. that is the Trump conundrum. That's what Republicans, I think, are going to learn in this uh, in this election. Ugh, it's a lot of it's tough stuff, tough stuff. Um, but thank you. So how can folks thank find you. you? This has been so great. We have, I'm so excited well, we got you uh, to come on and that uh, that you were so agreeable and got up early or at least started working early to talk to us. How yes. can folks find you if they want to know what you're up to? Well, obviously on the Atlantic, I'm writing on the Atlantic several days a week at theatlantic.com and at Ron Brownstein on Twitter uh, is uh, is a place where you can find lots of obscure poll numbers on a on a uh, on a daily basis. And of course, you know, I, I uh, where I'm you know uh, assiduously following both of you to uh, to learn. Uh, to learn as well. So, um, uh, but yes, that's where people can find me. Yeah. We have such a uh, important figures like beer still beats wine as America's favorite adult mm -hmm. beverage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can come to us for those kinds of very important numbers as well. Guys. Great talking to you. Thank you. All right. Take care.